Well, hey, Soma Midtown, this is Pastor Brandon, and I have Hannah Anderson with me, and we are here to talk about what is the next to last week in our vocation series on work. But before we get into work, Hannah, how are you doing? Well, um, I'm actually almost ready to head out on vacation, which takes a ton of work to get to, to be honest. But uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Um, how are you all doing? Uh, where are you going on vacation? Um, Chincoteague Island. It is off the wow. eastern shore of Virginia. Um, okay. So it's a place we, we don't go every year, but uh, it's our happy place, and we go there as we can. Okay. We we are heading to Destin, Florida. Um, I, likewise, on vacation. My family is actually uh, on their way down there right now, and I'll be heading down there tomorrow. Um, we're going to be gone for the week, and... Uh, this is something my wife's family has been doing for like 30 years, going down to Florida. Um, we we used to go to Myrtle Beach uh, every year. So, so yeah, it's a really fun time to get away with the kids and cousins and uh, much, much needed right now. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I, it's fascinating to me because every time, uh, you know, we get to summer vacation, I, I get, I love our summer vacations, but I, I have to be honest, I get a little jealous of my European friends who are like, I will be gone for the entire month of August. See you when I get back. Like, yes. and it, it really becomes clear to me how radically different um, we view within the United States, the relationship between our jobs and careers and vocation in that respect and rest and how, even though we're all Western countries, um, there are other countries who approach the question of work differently than we do in the States. Um, and so I've told Nathan, I'm like, okay, here's life goal. We work hard, we put our time in, and then at some point, we're going to be those people. We're going to take, like, the summer holiday. We're going to have six weeks somewhere where we can actually relax and holiday and then come back and be refreshed and go back into our work. Yeah, yeah. Holiday means something different here than it means in like Britain or right. Germany. Uh, I, we, I remember a guy in our church moved over to Germany. He was like, we have like 35 hour work weeks. This is amazing. And we have these long extended breaks. And, you know, vacation here is like, you know, maybe maybe you use all your quote unquote vacation days, but it is it is a yeah. poverty of imagination. It is. And um, I remember at one point when my when Nathan was pastoring, we were talking about taking days off or something or other people trying to get work off. And my son who had grown up with a dad who had, you know, not a regular work schedule in terms of it, you know, being a pastor, you're responding to a lot of different things. You have a flow, but it, but it's not typical in many ways. My son was like, why would somebody have to ask their boss not to be at the office? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, sweetheart. Oh dear, dear one. You have a lot to learn about the world. But it also makes me think how much of our concept of work is culturally bound to like how much of what we just take as this is the way it is. People work nine to five. We have 40 hour plus weeks. This is, you know, to your point, our imagination doesn't really push past what we've received in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's, I think, um, one of the big things we wanted, I wanted to talk about on Sunday is this idea of work as a calling, which in some ways bound, you know, bounds, put some boundaries on the conversation. Um, because work is, as we've, we've kind of saved work for last on purpose to kind of show that there are multiple overlapping callings. And if we make work 
the calling or the vocation, um, it, it really squeezes out our vision for these other callings. But we come to work usually, and I, I didn't grow up in the church, but I remember uh, I started a lawn business at, you know, 13 and my neighborhood passed out flyers. I wasn't thinking of, I was responding to a call from God. I was like, I need to make some money uh, and I need to make cash. I got to buy a car. I was, you know, thinking about turning 16 and having my own wheels. Uh, and then, you know, I was taught a, a doctrine of vocation early, thankfully, uh, when I responded to my call to ministry. But I think it it was conceived, I mean, very narrowly in terms of like, hey, pastors and missionaries are called to ministry. And then, you know, there's kind of another tier of just regular ordinary people who are like the ATMs that fund those who are really called to ministry. And so I don't think calling was something that I, I know my dad, even as a Christian, my mom, as a school teacher, my dad was in sales. I don't think that was really made clear or communicated to them and not certainly not how most people think about calling now other than maybe like they think of their work as a religion you know mm. but mm. yeah i don't know how you see that but it seems very odd for some people this might be a new concept for a lot of people yeah i think it's really important that you bring up the fact that we do have a category for some people's work as a calling like within the church, we talk about the calling to ministry, or we talk about the calling to the pastorate. And we have we have some sense of what it means for God to have prepared a work for someone, and then gifted them for that work, and then um, set up their life so that they would be able to enter into that work. And we even have a sense that within that calling, that work may be expressed in different places. Like maybe if you're called to ministry, you might be a pastor for a while, you might move on to some parachurch work, or you might be mission work. But that category of calling we use for ministry, I think what we need to do is maybe just borrow it and expand it more broadly to all the different types of work that, that God calls people into. Um, you know, I, I know sometimes the tension between clergy laity, church work, non-church work makes us want to say, well, it's all the same. And it is in a sense, but I think what makes it the same is that as much as God as is at work providentially in calling someone to ministry, he's at work providentially calling other people to other jobs and professions and ways that they would contribute to the world. And that seems like, I mean, one of the big contributions of the Protestant Reformation was in redefining calling, uh, redefining work as a calling, repurposing work as as not, you know, in, in the ancient world, it was obviously kind of a necessary evil, you know, uh, the goal was to have as much leisure as possible. But in the Protestant Reformation, there was a recovery of that doctrine of vocation, not just for monks or ascetics or clergy, but for everyone. And really to say, hey, the ordinary work you do, whether it's white collar work or blue collar work, really can be done as an act of love and service uh, for your neighbor. And, and Luther talked about those, the masks of God, like the ways that God providentially brings bread to people through all the means of production of, you know, uh, the farmers and uh, the supply chain and all that, and those who, you know, harvest the the grain and stuff. I mean, that's that was a really interesting, the way he protects us is through uh, the state and police officers and law enforcement and prosecutors and judges, and those kinds of things. I and mean, it really was a, a, an emphasis now that we kind of take for granted and has somewhat been lost. Mm. But I think in, in, in some ways, like simultaneously elevate work, like, hey, this isn't a necessary evil. This is like meaningful um, and, and there's dignity in it. 
but also probably in our moment kind of relativize it a little bit and say, but work's not everything. It's not your meaning and your purpose and your identity. Right. And I think part of what we're struggling with in this moment is our um, broader economic system isn't really work for work's sake, right? It's not honoring the work the way that Luther was talking about. It's not honoring, um, you know, the, the milkman or the carpenter for the sheer essence of the work. We tend to affix, um, you know, kind of a monetary value on work and then create hierarchies and honor work that brings in more capital um, and, and see that kind of work as important. And so I think part of what we're struggling with in this moment too is um, an inability to, to see that God honors all work regardless of how much it pays into the collective pot. That, that the money that is attached to a job or a profession is not the basis on which we honor or elevate that. Because when you do attach that kind of dollar sign to it, of course you're going to go after it. Of course you're going to make work your religion because that's how you um, know that you're a good person. That's how you you know achieve your righteousness is if you can reach a certain level and be affirmed and honored by your society and say, yes, you are successful. You did well. Yeah, it was interesting, like how um, during the pandemic last year, how quickly we began to this became to come into sharp focus. Like we all of a sudden had essential workers, but essential workers were the ones who were kind of ironically usually make I mean, other than maybe like doctors in the medical field, making the least amount of money, suffering the most, the most exposed to the virus, those who got very little time off and were expected to continue to work throughout the pandemic. And it had kind of revealed what we, I mean, what's been there for a while, but kind of mm -hmm. the inverted value system that we have in terms of how we see like essential versus non-essential or essential versus those who have the luxury of working from home, you know, for instance, right. uh, versus having to go in person and put themselves in harm's way. I mean, there are a lot of factors that make like good hard work difficult, you know, mm -hmm. in our in our moment in the West and the ways that we, like you said, assign value to work or the way that work is structured makes it really hard to do good, meaningful work uh, without experiencing envy, dissatisfaction, restlessness, and, mm -hmm. and a sense of just disillusionment, you know? Yeah, and I think we're actually in a moment right now coming out of COVID where a lot of people are asking the deeper questions about the work that they are engaged in. And I've heard it called um, the great resignation, that there are just people across the board right now um, quitting their jobs, not because they're quitters, but because they've kind of weighed what is this job doing? What am I getting? Is it worth the, the the stress it puts on my life? Is it fulfilling all of these questions? And and I think we're in a moment where people are really asking these deeper questions about um, their own calling in the world. I'm not sure that we have great answers for them as a culture, um, as a society, but I know the questions are out there. And that's what's so exciting to me about a Christian vision of vocation is I think it really does meet those basic human questions about what we are to do with ourselves in the world. Yeah. And, and again, it just gives, I think it gives such perspective to the work because I, I know a lot of people feel the pressure to play the game, you know, and to 
kind of invest their work with like a transcendent, you know, angst, especially, I mean, I pastor a young church. There's so much pressure to go to college, go to grad school, get your doctorate in some cases to really just work, work, work at the expense of, and really even the, you know, your parents are putting pressure on you. There's the society's putting pressure on you. And rather than it being an act of love and, and just a simple way to serve and love your neighbor, I mean, a lot of people are working in jobs where like a knowledge work where like they don't even interact with their end user. So like, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're crypto, some kind of crypto or digital user that they, you know, that they have uh, represented in like a market segment, you know, like um, uh, pro a, a profile, a customer profile or something, but they never actually meet them, never interact with them. And, and they find themselves like, you know, hitting their 30s going, what am I doing with my life? Right. I, I, I have the status, I have the significance, I'm making a good amount of money. And yet I feel uh, decreasingly like disconnected from yes. like this idea of loving and serving someone. I'm mm -hmm. sure someone somewhere is benefiting from this work, but I can't see it. And it seems to really then fuel later in life, maybe feelings of regret or even this midlife crisis, mm -hmm. you know, at, at 30, at the ripe yeah. old age of 30 midlife crisis over like, what am I doing with my life? And am I, and so you, you change jobs, you move cities multiple times and you find that, you know, in the words of that great theologian, you still can't find what you're looking for, you know? That's right. I think that angst, while it's very present in corporate spaces or in, um, you know, kind of careerism, I think that's a very similar angst that, um, women feel when they move from a more marketplace setting and maybe they come home or they're taking care of young children. Um, there is the question of, is this seen, you know, does this make any difference? And I think that it's that question of, does this make any difference? Um, here I am, whether I'm slaving away behind my computer screen or I'm slaving away in the kitchen, um, trying to get this toddler to eat his peas, it, there's that sense of, is this seen? Is it valuable? Does it have meaning? Um, is it making a difference in the world? Or am I just wasting my time? And I think that's what's so beautiful about the way uh, Paul talks about work within First Corinthians, that we are seen by God, regardless of where we are, um, whether in the corporate space or in a domestic space, that the, we work as unto the Lord, like he is the audience for which we are both called and we are responding to that call um, to know that whatever we are given to do does have value because it's given to us by God himself. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it's easy uh, to get kind of untethered from that reality, right? Because of the just the pressure that you feel, but what do you see as some of the, some of the challenges that make it hard for us to kind of keep that perspective? Cause I do think that like understanding as Ephesians talks about Colossians talks about this, a lot of different places that, you know, don't work to please men work as if God is your boss. Like mm -hmm. he is the one you're ultimately to please do all things for his glory. Paul says in first Corinthians 10. Um, but yet it's so challenging to kind of keep that perspective um, but work is that crucible where like we are being formed or we are being, mm -hmm. this is one of the primary crucibles. I mean, you're spending, you know, a good percentage of your life working. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yet it's easy to forget and it's easy to get disconnected because of some of the challenging, what do you see as some of those 
challenge is that like in a kind of capitalistic society like ours in the West, very educated with a lot of um, uh, hyper focus on, on, on our workplace, mm-hmm. you know, how, yeah, what do you I, see as some of those pressures? There's a lot, um, obviously you can come at it from different angles. One of the things I think is present in Paul's writing, not just in first Corinthians, but in his other epistles is injustice that happens in the workplace. Um, that he speaks to Christians who have, in other places, he calls them froward masters, right? These hard masters or hard bosses. Um, even within First Corinthians 7, he talks about, um, he speaks to those who would be um, indentured or bonded servants um, who weren't free and that their work was taking place in very broken, unjust settings. And there's this interesting thing that happens because you don't want to say to people who are in unjust places, well, you just work for the Lord and it all works out and just go back to your job that's not paying you adequately. Um, That's not the point of what Paul is saying in in any of these passages. He's saying, yes, it's very unjust. And, And he's acknowledging this kind of reality that a lot of our work takes place in unjust spaces. Um, But within that injustice, we have the hope that our work is not being overlooked. It's overlooked by men. It's not honored by maybe our company or our bosses, but it's not being overlooked by God. It's not being, um, you know, dismissed as unimportant or insignificant. And so as an individual, we can take hope, even as we're trying to find a better work arrangement or a more just space, we can take hope that we're not um, forgotten by God within these spaces. So I, I think that's one thing that I see a lot in Paul's writing about the injustice that surrounds work. And I think within a capitalist society or within n- not a pure capitalist society, more of like a crony capitalist society, um, we don't want to say that work is ever unjust. <laughs> like it, it, we don't want to say that there are conditions that do not honor image bearers um, because that kind of throws into question a whole lot of other things that we all assume are healthy and normal. Um, but I think knowing that the scripture itself has a category for unjust working conditions brings a lot of relief to those who are in those conditions. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I, I mean, what would you say to those who find themselves in those spaces? I mean, Paul gives some advice in chapter seven, um, you know, for those who, I mean, again, I feel like so much of this conversation about work and even purpose and meaning and passion, um, you know, passion in your work is really kind of a somewhat of an upper middle class white collar conversation. And I know you, you live in a rural context, you live in more of a blue collar community is where you've lived a lot of your life. Um, And that's not, it's a very different conversation. And so maybe for those who find themselves with fewer options, or maybe find themselves in jobs where it's like, hey, I don't I, okay, I can, I can be down with like, I'm called to be a farmer, I'm called to be uh, to work in retail, I'm called to dig ditches and be a construction worker. But I, it's not like a place I'm going to get like really jazzed up or find like a lot of ultimate meaning and significance because a lot of it, it, you, you maybe experience a lot of that toil um, and a lot of the thorns and thistles. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, what encourage, I guess, starting with that, like what encouragement would Paul, would you have for 
um, for those who find themselves in situations like that. And then for those who do have options, for those who do have choices, for those who have more freedom, you know, how do you deal with some of the angst of just having so many options? Yeah. You know, what is so beautiful, particularly in the book of First Corinthians, is there is this acknowledgement of broken work of unjust systems. And just a few chapters later, Paul is talking about our gifting, finding manifestation within the body of Christ. So one thing that I have seen in particular among working class communities, especially among working class Christians, is that the lack of respect and honor or the lack of flourishing around your own giftedness that might take place in the marketplace is able to be redeemed and reversed within the body of Christ. So that there is the capacity when you come into this community that these people will give you the freedom to flourish with the gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. That you may be digging those ditches, you know, nine to five or <laughs> more like seven to seven. Um, but when you come into the body of Christ, maybe you're the one who picks up the scripture and teaches, or um, you're the one who can provide uh, direction or wisdom within that context. And so there is an ennobling um, reality to using our gifts within the body of Christ and that to be a space of freedom for our work. At the same time, the, the work that happens within the body of Christ levels those who do have honor within a society, who are accustomed to being preferred, who are accustomed to being seen as better. And when they come into the body of Christ, um, there is a welcome humbling. There's a welcome um, perspective giving where you realize that your gift, as good and as valuable and wonderful as it is, um, is no better than the gift of your neighbor who digs stitches. And so I think part of the redemption we see within our work is designed to play out in the body of Christ in the church as our gifts and passions and capacities are given manifestation within the body. So one of the things we need to be making sure of in the church in as much as we have influence is that the church is not just simply a place that reinforces the status quo. And right. a lot of churches, it seems like, and I see this, you know, even to a degree at SOMA um, in, our, in our social brokenness is that it's easy to just become a, another arena where people who um, whose work maybe is not as valued or whose gifts are not as seen are also not as valued and seen in the church. And yet mm -hmm. we're supposed to be this countercultural place where, you know, Jew and Gentile, male and female, uh, servant and uh, master, so to speak, the, you know, employees and bosses, if you want to put it in a more modern context. Um, are are all honored. And I think that mm -hmm. challenging that status quo in the church is uh, is really hard because I think people in some ways come to church expecting, hoping that it's different, but, you know, tolerating the fact that it's the same. It absolutely is. Um, it is very easy for the church just to mirror the external hierarchies. And it requires an awareness and a knowledge of each other. It, it acquires, uh, requires proximity and intimacy to, to know um, that the person who digs ditches has a particular gift that, that he is not being able to use. And because you know him, you've learned this about him and you've seen it. And then you maybe perhaps use your, um, your capacity or your privilege to make an avenue for 
that to be known more broadly. So I think one of the things that's very practical is that we have to know each other across professional and socioeconomic lines. And we have to understand that what a person does in the marketplace is not who they are. And it may not even be representative of the gifts and passions that God has given them. It may just be that this is the way that they can feed their family. Yeah. What about those who maybe have more power and privilege and, and maybe have more options? You know, what, I mean, there we have a lot of younger people, again, like that are in those seasons of life where they're in their first or second job. They're experiencing kind of the ups and downs of that. But I think also um, the, the choice anxiety is a real mm. thing. And it's so mm-hmm. heavy, you know, and, and because it's such an existential proposition uh, in our in our cultural moment, I think they feel this just, you know, constant sense of like dread or like, am I, am I doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Am I in the right career? And, and I think even like you see that with um, the uh, Miles and I were talking about this the other day, kind of the plur- proliferation of the side hustle. Like mm-hmm. everybody's got two mm-hmm. or three side hustles, partly because of FOMO. Like I'm mm-hmm. afraid of missing out. And so I'm going to dabble in these other things, um, which in a sense creates more anxiety because I can't really give myself fully to any of them or be present fully to any of them. And yet I'm doing my day job. I'm a consultant. I've got this creative gig on the side. I've got, I'm Ubering at night, you know, and like whatever. And there's some of those are, you know, practical, pragmatic necessities, but many of them are not. Many of them are attempts to try to um, not have to choose. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, and I think probably what I would, would suggest and, and offer to folks is that you don't have to accept the narrative that's been given to you. Like, you have a great deal of freedom to push back against the structures as they've been delivered to you. And I find that um, that actually is harder for folks to do the more stable they are within the establishment. That um, the more you are successful or the more you are um, finding yourself rewarded for moving in a certain direction, it's harder for you to question that. Um, And I would just say, hey, you are free to question these things that feel overwhelming or feel like they're pressuring you. Um, I think one of the the kind of uh, unexpected freedoms within the working class is like, you know, that your that your work is not the end all and be all of your life. Like you have no um, disillusionment about what that work does for you. And because you also know it may not be there in two or three weeks. And so there's that there's kind of a healthy detachment there um, that a job is a job that serves a purpose. It provides for what you need to provide for, but it is not you. And I think maybe um, borrowing some of that wisdom from those who are maybe in a different situation is do not confuse yourself and your identity with the role you play in a space Um, and be willing to uh, question the narratives and the norms and to really know yourself and know your gifting and in community know what God might be calling you to or into and remember that ultimately it is God calling not the marketplace, not your parents, not your, you know, your bank account. At this stage, and I won't mention your age, um, and I won't mention my age, but we're close to the same age, midlife. Um, Looking back at your 25-year-old self, um, what would you say to that self 
who was trying to figure out her vocation that mm-hmm. you've learned um, in this season, you know, in terms of how your vocations panned out, how your, how your work specifically has panned out versus how you thought it might pan out. What would you say to that version of yourself to encourage them along the way, knowing what you know now? Yeah, I think I would say to her, it's okay. It works out because God's the one working it out mm-hmm. that all of our anxiety to want to make the right choice, to control this process, to be in the right place, to do the right thing. There are so many things and decisions that I made that I had no idea how God would use them ultimately. I mean, one of the things I think about over and over again, as I studied the humanities, which is just liberal arts, I mean, the things I studied had no significance in the real world. Like we're talking like history, philosophy, you know, language, linguistics, theology. And it was great. I loved it. And and I really felt God was calling me to study that. Um, and it made me maybe a good dinner guest, but completely unemployable until it became clear that God was calling me into writing into speaking, into the work that I do now. And suddenly it took about 10 years, maybe for all of that to click into place and for me to understand the providence that was in play, but it, it was clearly within God's providence. And so I would say, don't feel like you have to micromanage this. Don't feel like the weight is all on you, that you have to make all of these decisions that you're somehow going to miss what you're supposed to do. Um, This is God's work and he will call you into it. And, and you can trust that. Yeah, and that's so good. I, I think of I would never want to go back to being 20, 23 or 24 <laughs> again. I remember like I was studying business in, in my undergrad at the University of Kentucky and thought I was going to go into business. And uh, my undergrad's in marketing. Right, from that uh, early start at 13 <laughs> with the lawn yeah. business. Yeah, I mean, I did pretty well. And I enjoyed business and uh, and enjoyed thinking about, you know, organizational leadership and things like that. And and then I got into, you know, I went on a mission trip and all of a sudden I was wrestling with this calling, you know, what, what is my call? And I remember like somebody reading a Spurgeon quote to me, which was like, you know, basically like, don't do ministry if you can do anything else. And mm-hmm. it's some kind of paraphrase of something he said, basically like, you have to feel like there's nothing else you can do. Mm-hmm. And I remember like at the time that was kind of comforting because it felt permanent. Mm-hmm. The older I got, it actually began to feel like claustrophobic, like a straight jacket, like, man, it is there any, is there nothing else I can do? And what if I then lose my job as a pastor? And, and it almost became like, I've got to protect this calling on my own mm-hmm. because this is something that like God's given to me. And it's almost something like I possess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that over, over the years, I have felt way more freedom now, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my age, I'll, I'll, I'll say my age, I'm, I'm 40, about to be 41 this, this past week. And um, I feel a lot more freedom to say, no, like this is a job that I do, but I could do other jobs. There are other mm-hmm. things that I could do that are, that have just as much inherent dignity and value and worth, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's a job, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, uh, I have a larger calling in life, uh, but this particular aspect of my work is just a job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've got to do that as best I can, but I feel free, more free to say, yeah, like if I, uh, God calls me into this God can call me into something else. Right. Um, and I'm not necessarily actively looking for that, but I'm also not afraid or I don't have the fear, the anxiety, or even the regret of wondering, well, did I make the right moves? I, I mean, I only, I made the moves that I could make with the information that I have, and I made mistakes along the way. And I had to confess and repent and, and look my own selfish ambition in the eye many times, mm-hmm. but the freedom now at 40 to go, wow, the next five, 10, 20, 30 years, how many the Lord gives me, 
Um, it could look a lot of different ways. And I, I don't feel compelled. I don't feel a sense of compulsion to try to make something happen. Yeah. And that's exactly the disposition of Paul within first Corinthians seven, when he's answering the question about um, whether the, the believers should seek their freedom. If they were um, bonded servants, whether they should try to move out of that position, or if they were free, whether they should become servants. And it's almost as if Paul, in writing this, says, Meh, well, you know, do what you do, whatever happens, know this, that, that God is in control of this, and whatever comes, you're still going to be working for him. You're free, and if you're a servant, you're free in the Lord, and if you're free, you're a servant in the Lord, and this kind of layering um, of, of God being the one ultimately in charge of this really, like, to your point, brings perspective on the actual transitions that we go through that all of them are under his care and you're not going to miss what he has for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. I mean, I think just with that in view, I mean, I love those words again in Corinthians, first Corinthians three, Paul says, why are you like boasting? Why are you experiencing all this like anxiety uh, with human leaders? Like all things are yours, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. I mean, that, that sort of new creation perspective, I think does, does just kind of calm the soul and allow you to rest. And I think that's that's my hope for our church, for those who are listening, is that people would be able to pursue their work um, from a place of rest, from a place of grace and understanding that, you know, at, at the beginning, middle and end, this is God's work um, and our work is an extension of his work. And if we're resting in that, we I think we can come to our work with a sense of uh, a measured perspective um, and a sense of confidence and really trust and surrender. And I think that's where Jesus was. You know, I don't do anything except uh, what the Father tells me to do. I don't feel compelled to try to be something I'm not. Um, I simply fulfill the vocation I was given. And so I think it's a good place, place for us to stop. And if you have questions or you're wrestling through some of those vocational tensions and you're listening to this podcast, we'd love to come alongside and help you think through that, pray through that, and discern what God might be inviting you into. It could be a career change. It could just be uh, a reorientation of how you're doing, how you're pursuing your, uh, your work. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I hope for our church. Our vision is to be a church that encourages people in their work to see their work as a place of formation and as a kind of a crucible for what, um, God wants to do in, in broader measure in your life and redemption. So, uh, Hannah, we pray for us to just pray over our community as we think through and, uh, and try to discern and live out our, our calling to work. Absolutely. Heavenly father, we are humbled and grateful for the calling that you have put on our lives, that you have called us into the work that you're doing, that you are working within us through our work, that um, you are shaping and molding and calling us into Christ-likeness, even through the process of discerning our vocation, our gifting, and where we would um, play these things out in the world. I pray that um, folks would have clarity, that they would find peace and your security, that they would know that you are ordaining and you are maintaining them within their work, that it is not something that they carry alone, but that you, through your son, um, are walking and working with them within the things, the very things that you've called them to. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>